Hello, everyone. I am Manny. And I'm Wyo. And welcome back to the Kink Buffet podcast. We are on episode 20. And we decided to call episode 20 the last episode of season one just because it sounds cool to have seasons. <laughs> There's no real re- reason for it except we can. So we're going to. Well, we're also taking a tiny little break and going to be in the Green River Canyons. So we will be offline for a weekish and uh, make that a good transition to the next. Yeah, one of the most effective ways to uh, remain monogamous is disappear in the desert away from another human being for a week. And socially distance. And socially distance. So we're COVID friendly. We are. <laughs> so as we've been sharing, we have never once claimed to be experts. Rather, we're well, that's not true. We are very much experts at us. But we are not experts at anyone else or any of these worlds that we're part of. But we're excited to talk to people that do know more than us about their areas of expertise. So that could be kinks, that can be DS relationships, or just non-monogamy. And and we got a really great guest on. We're really excited. Yeah, and people with real cred and lots of initials after their names are exciting. So they are. Uh, today joining us is Erin Davidson, RCCMA, and she is the author of a book called Thriving in Non-Monogamy, An Ethical Slut's Guide, Overcoming Jealousy, Enjoy Sex, and Honor Yourself. Thank you for joining us, Erin. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is fantastic for us because we're always on a quest for learning. And the minute we think we know everything, we're going to get stale and stagnant and life is going to become boring. (laughs) Which is the opposite of our kink. Our kink is variety. We like to have lots of different things going on. So welcome to that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I cannot wait. And why I cannot wait. I don't want to speak for you. But we're excited to hear all about your book. And we want to learn all about the life of a sex therapist. But first, if it's okay, do you want to give us just a quick background on you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I have been practicing as a sex therapist for a few years now, and I sort of got into this field, um, sort of like gradually, I started by doing my master's and I was focused more on like supporting sexual assault survivors. And I was going through like processing my own experience of sexual assault and from, from there, I found that I started to be drawn to what like sexual healing looked like. And I started to get really like I couldn't read enough of like different books on sexuality and sex. I couldn't listen to enough podcasts, probably just like this one. Um, and I started to think, oh, like my pipe dream would be to be a sex therapist. But in my head, who that was, was this really kind of like meet the Fockers kind of style. If you remember that character, (laughs) the mom in that one Um, Uh with like the like bracelets and the like eccentricities and her like penis sculptures (laughs) in her office. And I just thought, Oh, I don't really fit that mold. Um, But then the more I kind of started to dive into like reading different books and like learning about people like Esther Perel, if you're familiar with her, I started to think, oh, like maybe there could be a space for me. And so 
as I kind of got into some training, I just really loved everything that I was doing and haven't, haven't looked back since. You know, I, I love the, the right off the bat, you just some, said something I think is really smart. You said there's a space for you mm. One learns differently. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there would be a counselor that would be the best counselor for every single couple out there. Yeah. You, there are counselors that match personalities or styles or techniques or any number experience. Mm-hmm. Right, people. So uh, would you agree it's about finding the right fit for you, right? Yeah, completely. And that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I I did my sex therapy training. And I was so grateful for that experience because I would be in a room of like 30 people who also were training to be sex therapists. And there was like 30 different types of people. And it was so, um, so like such a great experience to meet all these different types of like sex positive people but also to see oh there isn't just one way to be and you're exactly right like they're the person who's the right therapist for one couple or for one person is going to be completely different to the next and so the more of us the better I think no I I think you're absolutely right and so we were we're going to get into the weeds wherever this conversation goes but I want to start with Tell us about your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, it is set up so that I think it will support people in whatever relationship style they're in, whether they're monogamous or currently in a ethical non-monogamous relationship or somebody who is kind of hoping to make that transition into ethical non-monogamy. And it covers quite a breadth of things. And so I feel like it can almost be used almost like a bit of like a resource book to go back to. Um, And so there's things for like self-reflective questions for looking at if you're ready for non-monogamy, things also with like strengthening your communication, which is so key. Um, I also found some space to shift in some information about trauma, um, relational trauma, and attachment theory, and also some space to talk about processing emotions and and that sort of thing. And so I hope it's a really supportive and non-judgmental and also accessible guide that really works for a whole bunch of different people. That's that's beautiful. So what it inspired you to write a book on on this topic? Mm-hmm. Well. It was sort of fortunate because the opportunity was presented to me. The The publishing company had sent me an email one day and it was, it was right before the pandemic actually. And so I'd, I'd gotten this opportunity. It was on a topic that I was really passionate about and excited about. And then the timing presented itself of us all being in lockdown and actually having the time to write it. And so it's, it's almost like it kind of all fell into place. Now, it's so with your counseling, you counsel singles and couples yes. both? Yeah. And, okay, and you also, I'm, I'm not saying this as a statement, I'm actually asking, do you mm-hmm. also counsel couples monogamous as well as non-monogamous as well as transitioning to? 
Yes. Yeah. All the, all of those different arrangements. I still just would see at, at this point, just two people at once. And so if they're part of a, a throuple or something larger than that, I would find that that would work better with someone who was more, had like a family therapy background that could manage all those different dynamics. Um, but I would, I definitely see two people virtually or in my office that, um, that are in various stages of, in various iterations of non-monogamy and monogamy. So, so when the non-monogamous couples come mm-hmm. to you, are they, are they coming, are, are there situations or the things they come to you, are they just what basically all couples face mm-hmm. or are there other things that they're specifically looking for? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm asking in general. I mean, I know it's individual, mm-hmm. but it, find it, it's a very much the same thing that all humans face as relationships, or is it totally different? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, it's a combination of things. What I often see is, so I work at a, a therapy practice that's a group practice focused on sex therapy. It's called Allura. Um, sex therapy center here in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so right away when people come to us and see us, they know that we are like sex positive. It's a sex therapy focused environment where we are supportive of all different relationship styles and forms of non-monogamy. And so often what will happen is people will have had negative experiences, unfortunately, with, with therapists who are potentially judgmental of non-monogamy or don't quite understand it or often are well-meaning, but like judgmental without even realizing it. And so sometimes we get, we get those folks who just want to be able to talk about the issues that they have in their non-monogamous relationship without feeling like it's pathologized or without feeling like the reason that the issue is that is because of the relationship arrangement. And because, and so often when we get into things and they're able to see that like I am supportive of that relationship style and open to it, um, we're able to really then kind of have more honest conversations, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a very common theme among people seeking out uh, kink friendly. Mm-hmm. Like just having a space where you can be yourself and not have to dance around the words is so valuable. Yeah. And then one other yeah. piece I would add to that is what I can often see is people that are dealing with things like relationship distress or jealousy but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily any like different than how it would show up in like a monogamous relationship or like a one-on-one client that I'm seeing it just like in ethical non-monogamy you're kind of inviting more of those experiences in the front door so there's more possibility that it will show up but I wouldn't say that it's like I would box that as like oh this is a separate thing that I'm looking at as a therapist than if I was seeing just like a one-on-one client or, or a monogamous couple. Okay. Now here's the, the first thing I was, the first question I had when we, uh, when Wild told me we'd, we'd be talking to mm. you, you ever in any situation recommend non-monogamy for a couple that is having problems and you think this might be a good outlet because that seems incredibly risky on the professional side, if it doesn't work out, mm. that you do something so outside the box, do you do that? Or is that something that you will speak to someone about if they already are interested or pursuing it? 
Yeah, it's so it's so person and couple dependent. Um, and I don't see my role as the therapist as someone who kind of prescribes like, oh, this is the best action for you. And I know best. I definitely believe that the client is the expert on their own experience. And so the the extent that I would do of that is if somebody is like showing interest and they just don't have the information, I would like check if they're interested and I would kind of offer it to them. Like I've sent people um, like YouTube links to, I think Dan Savage has a, a thing where he talks about monogamish and some people haven't even heard of that idea or to um, what else do I send people like introduce people to sex at dawn, that book, if they have the curiosity, because some people just, they, and, and also like introducing the idea that the modern way we do monogamy is, is not the way that it's always been. Like it's something that's changed over time and the expectations that we have on one person to be our everything for us now is like unprecedented. So I'll, I'll introduce those ideas to people, but then leave it to them to inquire more or to learn more. That is so great. We, we've used those exact words. Mm. Uh, we were describing our, dynamic and how we came into this like trying to find somebody who was the everything and that's sort of a selfish way to look at relationships because (laughs) it puts on the other person to live up to that standard yeah yeah I agree with you wholeheartedly yeah we we use the example all the time because we are a part of the BDSM Mm -hmm. community and you know and why I was really into real sophisticated rope work. She's a submissive, mm-hmm. a bottom uh, rope uh, and, and suspension and a lot of the things that come with that. I love big restraints, but I'm not a rope person. That's not my mm-hmm. thing. So our dynamic puts us in a position where either she has to give up that interest of hers. Mm-hmm. or I have to practically go to college to pursue something that, is a very steep learning curve. A steep learning curve that is efficient in order to give it to her. Or option three is I can drive her over there and maybe even be there mm-hmm. to watch. She can love me to death because she gets to have me and this thing that I don't mm-hmm. offer. And it, option three for us seems like so natural. Mm. Right. But if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have said absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's I guess not, you're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we're just going to have to compromise. What are you going to give up? What am I going to give up? It's, it's such an interesting transition. Now, um, th- has your views shifted over time? I mean, have you, like, is, when you're working in this field, do you find yourself having different ideas about this that you had a, from a year ago or, or longer? Or yeah. have you always? Yeah, I love that question. I think. Like, yeah, like constantly, I feel like I have the, I always want to learn more and I'm open to being corrected and just all like the different training that I do. I feel like there's constant kind of um, just like integrating new information and pieces and like particularly having like grown up, I grew up in a Christian environment. And so the messages I got there was like sex is bad and sex is dirty and like absolutely no sex before marriage. And like the processes of like untangling those messages and 
coming to my own understanding of of sex as something that is can be really beautiful and wonderful and um just like it, that was a huge shift so i feel like there's always more to learn and um i feel really lucky to be in a field where i get to do that quite frequently and especially cuz sex is so like it is it's more than sex it's such a piece of who we are and it relates to so many different aspects of of just like how we live our lives fantastic now have you have you ever been surprised by meeting someone that maybe pursued a type of sexuality that you had a negative opinion about and then met them and then went now that seems to be working for him. Like, have you ever had any, have you ever turned on a dime mm. upon meeting someone? Oh, that's a really good question. Let me think about that. Hmm. Well, well, while you're thinking about all, one of the reasons I ask is that a really common thing that we've come across is because we're in a dominant and submissive mm-hmm. submission role. And we don't assign gender to those roles. We do not believe that a male should be dominant, a female should be submissive. We believe an individual can be male or female dominant or submissive. Mm-hmm. In 2020, a dominant female and a submissive male isn't really frowned upon. But if you reverse it, it tends to be a throwback to a time where women were dismissed and considered lesser than. Uh, I, like, you, can, you could cringe at that dynamic if you've never been around it. And we've had so many people have met us and thought that's, this is not what I thought it would look like. Mm. And so I was wondering if you had those similar experiences where you had an idea about how things were, and then you meet maybe even another counselor who is involved in certain lifestyles and went, Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And like, when you ask that question, I think of, um, in again, in my the training that I went through, we had panels of like variety of people. We had a kink panel, we had a, a polyamory panel, and I'm sure those shifted my perspectives. But it's almost like it's hard to think back to okay, like a specific moment where that shifted. Um, be, and I feel like the the privilege of being a therapist and really hearing people's like real experiences, I feel like it, it really cuts through um, like the judgment really quickly because you just kind of, when you talk to someone about like their real fears and their real worries and their real joys, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to judge that. Sure. It humanizes, it humanizes so it. Generic stereotype or diagnosis. It's, there's a real person. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. That seems the right, mm-hmm. the right word because that's all the polarization and tribalization in the world is is just a way of dehumanizing people that aren't in your mm-hmm. tribe, right? Sexuality or your religion—it doesn't matter. Yeah. So yeah, so the, the humanization. I love that you put it that way. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So let, so go. Let's different groups of different couples come to see you. So the monogamous couples that are open to hearing about other things i'm i'm guessing monogamish is kind of the first little put your toe in the water into something outside of tradition Mm -hmm. um will you explain because a lot of people haven't heard that term explain what that is yeah well it's it's really a term that could mean like there's so much variety of what it could mean and 
to me, like I, it's, it means like just getting more explicit about what you mean when you say monogamy, because we all, when we, well, not all of us, but most of us, when we think of monogamy, we have a certain idea of what that is, but very few of us sit back and examine, okay, who told me what that is? Um, or is this something that actually works for me? And so the probably general definition of what we think monogamy is now, which is like one sexual partner, it is, again, something that's shifted over time. So that used to mean like one person, you'd get married to them, they'd be your only sexual partner, and that would be the expectation for life. And now we see that people get married, they get divorced, um, people date, they break up. And so the current definition of monogamy is one person at a time. And so really this, it's kind of just getting into, okay, what is the definition that works for me? Is it okay that I like getting really explicit about it? Like, what does it mean? Is, is it cheating to, um, to watch porn? Is it cheating to pay to have um, like a webcam intercourse experience or not intercourse, but like a webcam experience? Is it, is it cheating to flirt with the cashier at the grocery store and just like creating your own rules? So maybe that is okay. Maybe it is okay that you sleep with somebody else when you go travel for work. Maybe it is okay that it's like making it explicit together in your arrangement. I had a, a little bit of a deeper expansion of my definition of what sexual contact mm. is when I community because we're doing these things. We like the things that the other people do. But the whole point is that it's exciting. It's it's arousing. Mm -hmm. so what point is it actual sexual contact? Is it sexual contact because there's penetration of some sort? Is it sexual content contact because I felt aroused? Mm -hmm. So see how that transition expanded my perception of what polyamory is because I consider the people that I play with mm -hmm. partners even though sometimes they're not actual in my head sexual contact yeah yeah that's such a great example so one one thing that you're you're saying which I I like is that within our DS relationship one of the, the parts of this process has been lots and lots of negotiation. And in most BDSM, when done, at least our version of how it's supposed to be, negotiation comes mm -hmm. first. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out how we get into this, how we get out of it, what's okay, what are your limits. There's, there's so much to get on the table because you're playing with something potentially harmful and potentially beautiful. Let's figure out how to make it the best it can be. But in the DS relationship, it goes into the relationship side where we have spent countless hours discussing roles mm -hmm. and just what's okay and what's not okay. And we've, we've laid a framework where we can now exist in this and know that everything within this framework is okay because it's been negotiated. So, which is kind of like what you're saying, which is I, well, actually, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'll, I'll ask you, is that similar to what you're saying about couples discussing what is cheating? What is okay? Where are the lines? Is, is that similar? Yeah, completely. And the 
the King community gets set such a great example about communication and, and also the fact that it's not a one and done conversation. The way that like sex mm -hmm. plays into your relationship and um, like eroticism and whether like what that looks like within the dynamic of two people or more, like that is something that is constantly changing over the lifespan. And so to be able to leave that as a conversation that you can have be open and come back to together is so important. Yeah, we actually, we had a, a potential situation that came up not that long ago, wasn't even exclusively sexual, but it came up where we hadn't negotiated how that would look and how that would affect us and our relationship. And so we passed on it with the idea that we're going to talk about it later because you don't want to negotiate in, mm -hmm. in the moment. In the moment. If, I mean, you're not thinking right. None of us are thinking straight when we have certain feelings. I mean, that's universal, yeah. right? Blinders on. So, so we actually said, this is a, this is an area that's not healthy for us because we haven't negotiated it pass. And we talked about it later and figured it out. Next time it comes up, we'll, we'll, we've come to an agreement on it. But that, yeah, that communication in the kink community seems to be when done right. It, it, like it's very mm -hmm. healthy. Yeah. And the fact that it is an ongoing thing. And I think a lot of people that get introduced to the kink community via mainstream or Hollywood channels mm -hmm. think that it's like, oh, it is a one mm -hmm. and done thing. You, you say, these are my limits. And then the other person has rain up to do that or, you know, it's maybe not even explicit negotiation, but our negotiation extends to our whole life. So it is totally mm -hmm. ongoing. Like we have conversations every day. Yeah. Because of that, like that's where it started. We were negotiating how the relationship would look, and that's why we ended up podcasting. Yeah, I I, I put a a collar on Wyo in June, and she had never worn one, and I had never put one on anybody because both of us consider this our version mm. of marriage. Not a small thing; it's something we take very serious that we discussed for months what mm -hmm. this would look like, and. And when we do our podcast, we talk all the time about designer relationships is what we call them, Yeah, which is lots of stuff that we do that does, you don't want to do, but look for those things that you go, Hey, that, that makes sense. Or that could work for me. And then pick from it what you like and then discard what doesn't work. And things like negotiation that could work for every monogamous relationship. If uh, like, I think yeah, people should. Completely. <laughs> Let's get. What's, what is this going to look like? How often, hey, if, if we move in together, how often do you plan on going out drinking with your friends? Right. Let's just, like, don't don't decide that after you've moved in. That's the wrong time to be angry Totally. I, I remember when I was about to move in with my current partner that I live with, and my therapist was, I was feeling quite nervous about it because this was a big decision for me. And she was telling me to write, like, a contract, like a roommate contract. And I thought that that was at first, like the cheesiest thing I'd ever heard of. And I was thinking, oh, that is so embarrassing. I don't know if I can bring that up. But then I did. And it was so helpful. Like we went through things like, like the conversation we're having now, like, what do we consider cheating? Like, what is in our monogamy agreement, but also things like, um, 
what do we do if um, somebody does cheat? Like, how do we want to respond to that? And also like simple things like what is important to me in terms of like who takes care of the kitchen, who takes care of the bathroom. And then we get to keep this, this contract. And it's something that is like a living document. Again, we can go back to it, we can edit it, but we're on the same page then. It makes it more clear. Yeah, absolutely. Back years ago, back before, you know, this, this is a relatively new world for me. So I come from a very traditional background. Jealousy was more of an mm -hmm. issue when I was younger. And I one time, this is in hindsight, when I look back at a partner who went out uh, to a friend's birthday party and they went out to some country bar and she came back and she was so excited. She's like, oh yeah, I was dancing with this guy all night. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, but, and I'm like, well, that doesn't, it, not, nothing about that felt good to me. Mm. But from her perspective, place where there's dancing, that, that's what you do. Hey, good news. I didn't spend any money on drinks all night. Like she didn't do yeah. anything wrong. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong for what I was feeling. We just ha had never discussed what was allowable. Right? What, what yeah. felt okay. And, and, and that was like in hindsight, wow, what a really easy thing to have avoided. That was an argument that didn't need to happen. Yeah. But it's, and it's okay that it's like a trial and error process too, because you can't anticipate everything. And it's also okay that you have different expectations for each person for sure. too. Right. And we've talked about that, you know, even though he's the Dom and he couldn't, you know, kind of has the last word on things. It's okay for mm -hmm. me to not agree. And what negotiation is if I don't agree, I have, I have a, a voice to say that. And so that we can try and find some kind of common, ground on it it's not just that I take whatever he says at as you know the final word always right it, 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 well there's areas with the exception there are areas where both of us have the final word if it's our area of areas of control that we've negotiated to give up right so but again negotiate it makes it so simple our, our, we, we communicate it's the best communication I've ever had it's so simple when you have and by the way we also yeah. put it in writing <laughs> All right, so this is so that's for the couples that are maybe curious or you see the potential of something and you kind of throw some hints out there and see if they're interested. What about couples? Do couples ever come to you who are interested in exploring this but afraid of hurting the relationship, afraid of getting hurt, but they're open enough to want to go seek professional guidance. Yes. That yeah, happen? definitely. And sometimes it's both okay. people um, that have those fears. Sometimes it's one person that has those fears and the other person um, is more comfortable with the idea. Okay. So first question, can it work if one person wants to pursue this and the other person does not? Is that possible or is that a barrier? Yeah, well, and I guess it depends on like a lot of factors, but also how hard of a no it is for the one person. Um, yeah. That makes sense. There's like, we make all sorts of compromises in our relationships. And so as long as it's not compromising, I really like to lead with helping people 
identify what their relationship values are. And so if we identify the values and it really like goes against their core values to pursue ethical non-monogamy, then it, it likely wouldn't work. But if it's something like, um, like, let's say we make, we make all kinds of compromises, like moving to different places that we might not um, otherwise want to, but our partner has a job there and we, we make that compromise. And so, so for some people, it can be that kind of compromise where it's not, um, it's not like fatal to their sense of who they are and identity, but they would choose something else if, if um, potentially if they were with a different partner. Yeah. Yeah. We about um, having check boxes and when people check off certain ones, then that's a good thing. But then there are certain checks that are higher priority where it's mm-hmm. non-negotiable. So if that person check that, then they're not a long-term consideration. Like they might just be a partner that's, you know, a, you know, it's a different form of a relationship, not going to be a exactly. primary situation. Okay. And so now the question that comes up probably most frequently, tell me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. jealousy. Couples that are looking to pursue this, is, do they actually express that jealousy is their fear? I mean, uh, couples that have not yet mm. tried this, do they that this might hurt? This might hurt. So the Could you say that one more time? Sure. Do they, do they often express to you that I'm afraid of doing this because mm. it's going to cause me pain and jealousy and security? But I mean, jealousy is really, at the, isn't that the core of all this or at least a large part? Yeah. And I think that that is sometimes people's apprehension. And then sometimes people don't, people get surprised by it. Some people don't expect that it's going to show up and then it does. And Mm -hmm. are you familiar at all with Clementine Morgan's work? Oh, they're great. Um, I believe she uses she pronouns as well as they pronouns, but they have really great um, zines and also some workshops online that looks at like trauma and and polyamory. And I find it that um, she has a really helpful like reconceptualization of, of jealousy and rephrasing it as distress, because often what we experience as jealousy or what we think is jealousy is more of like an amalgamation of a bunch of different emotions. It's often fear or like your trauma response of past relationship um, injuries coming up. And so often it's a lot deeper than, um, than just the jealousy feeling that's coming up. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to have to deep. Yeah. Deep dive so jealousy is the result of something, not the cause of something. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. sometimes yeah. this is, and this is in my book too. So a um, little key in there, but um, it can often be like someone who is really on board with non-monogamy it really lines up with their relationship values and yet whenever their partner goes on a date with with their metamor then they're at home and like incapacitated they're so stressed and it's it's like heart beating fast like thoughts racing can't focus and like that's a that's a trauma response that's an attachment injury and so I think often we look at people with that kind of reaction and we tell them oh well non-monogamy isn't for you 
when when really we wouldn't say that to somebody if they were having the same reaction but let's say they're single and they're dating or they're in a monogamous relationship if somebody was having that much distress we wouldn't tell them sorry i've got a siren going on here we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't tell them to not date just because it's it's hard we would support them and this is me professionally speaking as a therapist, I'd support them with having some strategies to like to cope with the distress, some breathing, some um, some mindfulness exercises, some grounding, some ways to cope with that acute distress without saying that, okay, well, because this is hard, you shouldn't do it. And let me know if I could unpack that a little bit more if that is a bit confusing. I love that. One of the first thing we tell people who are exploring this is we say, yeah. plan on it being hard. It, it's so simple on paper. Like on mm. paper, oh my God, this seems like such a solve. Back up, it's hard. <laughs> or it can be. All right, now here, here's something I'm curious about because you have a much larger sample size than the, the people that I've been exposed to. But my suspicion is the people that want to explore non-monogamy those types of people are probably a broad spectrum everywhere from a healthy expression of sexuality and needs not getting met all the way to low self-esteem and inability to have a intimate relationship. I mean, you probably, there's probably the gamut of people who want to explore this for positive and negative motives. Would yeah. That, would that I, I think right? that that's fair to say. So do you try to, as a counselor, do you try to differentiate between those different types? And like, do you think to yourself, this is not for when you're looking at someone across the, the, the room, do you ever think for you, this is not what I feel would be a healthy outlet. But then the very next people that come in, you think, wow, this, this sounds like a great thing for you. Or do you try to just do what they want and try to make it mm. work? Yeah. And so if I see that there's, like, very much been a rupture like if it's a couple if there's very much been a rupture in the relationship um let's say like an infidelity or um long-standing um like emotional neglect or distance or they're really disconnected i i won't hide that from them i'll i'll, I'll present that to them and i'll let them know that this is like non-monogamy is harder in a lot of ways than monogamy, simply by the fact that there's more people in the mix. You have to really have your communication skills. Um, you really have to have your emotional intelligence skills and your self-awareness. And so I will like present that to people when I see that. And we will try to work on those areas as well. But we'll also look at the non-monogamy. But if I see big real roadblocks there, I will put that forward. Okay. So couples, traditional monogamous couples who, whose relationships aren't working, who go to seek counseling, regardless of the quality of the counseling or the intent of the people, a percentage of those relationships mm -hmm. still just don't work out, obviously. So with, when couples are in that situation, things aren't working. And again, I know that many times they'll want to pursue it when things are working fine, but I'm speaking specifically when they're trying to fix something that's broken 
and they want to explore non-monogamy. How often do you see that being something where they come back and say, oh, my God, our, our life is now fixed and better and mm. we're happy now? Versus how often do they come back and it just speeds up the process mm. of the breakup? Or does it vary? Just simply. Yeah, I think that that's another one of those that I, I would say it depends. Yeah, it very much is individual. Yeah, yeah, I've always I've always wondered that because the, I always think that at the very least, maybe you speed up the breakup process. You don't; it doesn't have to linger for five more years if it's not working. Um, but that's not a. I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's it's a, a horrible, painful thing that they've gone through. But um, it can definitely, yeah, it definitely speeds up that. But I've also seen couples who are happy that were broken mm-hmm. and yeah, now yeah. I think that it's something that certainly can apply like stress to already a, a situation that maybe have stress, not unlike, um, like we're seeing really a variety of experiences of couples that have been in quarantine together. And some of the people that I mm-hmm. thought would have really struggled are like thriving. It was just what they needed. They needed the quality time and other people, it was the, the, the last straw that kind of broke things. And so I think that, that's kind of like introducing a new relationship style is it's it's applying some stress which some people can respond positively to and for others it it might just be too much but it's i think it's hard to predict that's a really good point like with the quarantine like we 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 laugh because we're together 24 hours a day anyway so the fact that quarantine is (laughs) <laughs> it's what we do it's... yeah no so okay so so those are couples who are exploring it now what about couples who are in a non-monogamous ethically or, or i guess i guess just ethically relationship they come to you do they this was kind of the earlier question but do they tend to have the same problems that any other couple would face or are there different challenges that they're facing like is it do do you face something where you're like oh that's an interesting one I haven't heard that before because there's another piece to the puzzle yeah yeah there's just like different relationship dynamics to navigate like a lot more communication um like it will bring up different different emotions from like I like to look at things from an attachment lens and so that means looking at how your early experiences with people that were your caregivers or just early relationships influence you later in life. And so it can bring up different things. If you've, um, if you've had like different like formations, maybe extended family relationships early on, and now you're kind of having some of those early wounds brought up potentially that wouldn't have been brought up if you were in a monogamous arrangement, but are brought up because you've got, partners of partners and extended arrangements and it can bring up different stuff. And then of course, just on the like present day level, there's the communication around what the comfort level is with how much you want to know about what your other partner's doing or um, how much you want to have a relationship with your partner's partner. There's just kind of other things to talk about. So a lot of it is is practical skills. Gotcha. 
So do you, and this doesn't necessarily apply to non-monogamy, just any couples counseling, do you ever recommend breakups to people or is Mm. that not your place? I haven't yet been put in the position where I felt that was something I would say to somebody. Um, I imagine maybe one day there will be a time, but I kind of up until this point see my role as so far as I kind of present the facts to people of what they've shared. And if we feel like we're stuck kind of sharing my insight into what the patterns are that I see, but still at the end of the day, it's as long as there's not abuse that I'm aware of physical or emotional, that isn't something that I've, I've felt the need to do at this point. Well, well I've, um, just to dig deeper on that, when you mentioned abuse, what about, say, couples? Because I've also seen couples where it's sure, is, to me, anyways, you know, I can't, I'm not walking in their shoes, but it, it appeared to me that one person just wanted to be able to screw around and not get yelled at, and the other person just lacked mm. the self-esteem to leave. And that, to me, is abuse. That is taking advantage of a person's vulnerability to have your cake and eat it too. It's very, it's, it's cringy. And and I've seen that. I mean, have you seen situations like that where it felt very one-sided and, or is it, if it's couples counseling or both people usually on board, if they're both in there? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there can be quite a variety. Um, To it's, so it sounds like you're asking if I've had a, a couple that where there's been like an abusive dynamic and I've had to tell the couple that the relationship needs to end. Well, not even necessarily you. I mean, you speak to your peers about, you know, I, I would, maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume you speak to each other and consult each other. And um, I was wondering if that, if that came up, if you found a very uneven dynamic at times and a very, cause that to me is abusive. I mean, it's strange. You'd have to listen to our podcast to understand why we don't feel a DS relationship yeah. is that because there is, there are elements of different power levels that are not. Yeah, consensual. completely. And so that seems like, I mean, I, I could see a traditional man who has a, who's abusing his wife, maybe not physically, but emotionally evolving to a point where he's now mm-hmm. polyamorous and that, way of being able to get away with sleeping around and but it's not a healthy it's not healthy i i guess i, I was wondering if that if you encountered that but maybe those couples don't go see mm-hmm. couples counseling and either. yes there's there's different um like intensities of like um manipulative behavior or abusive behavior and at at this point i've i've been in a position where the people that i've seen I can like reflect back to them what the behavior is that I'm seeing. And it, it hasn't been to an extent that I feel um, like, fortunately that I feel like this is a couple that is really in danger or one person is really in danger. But um, I know colleagues where that's definitely been the case and it's, it's a really tough situation to be in as the therapist and you, you try to make it as clear as possible and, you, you maybe see the couple individually so that you can have space to talk to the partner who is at the receiving end of the emotional abuse and to really highlight 
and make it clear what is happening and to help them have options of what they can do. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? No, it, it totally yeah, does. And, I, and yeah. And, and my follow up to that would be, it would feel like that would put you in a vulnerable position of making people think that you're taking sides, which I, even if you do take sides, I, I'm, I suspect you don't ever want them to feel you. Yeah. Want. It's a dance. <laughs> and there's, there's different perspectives oh, that- to that in couples therapy with um, to take sides or to be neutral. Um, I definitely am of the mind of, I'm always looking at them with like, positive regards and non-judgment, but there are situations where you need to really highlight that a behavior isn't okay. And a behavior that is, um, we use the term like in the one up position. So like kind of more grandiose or like more better than rather than one down would be in shame. And so the power that can happen there. And so I'm of the perspective that there are times where confrontations need to happen in the therapy room and that needs to be made explicit that that behavior isn't okay. All right. Sort of on the theme of confrontations, but hopefully not uh, <laughs> conflict. Uh, if you, we haven't talked about singles very much, but if you were counseling somebody who is a single who wants to, or maybe just one of the partners wants to bring up the conversation about being non-monogamous mm-hmm. or wanting to explore it, a new partner or a current, like what kind of advice would you give kind of summarily for mm-hmm. somebody like that? Yeah. And specifically with um, like having the conversation about, about like what they are looking for in a relationship, in an open relationship or a non-monogamous relationship. Yeah. Um, There can often be, I find a lot of internalized like guilt or shame about wanting that, especially if somebody hasn't been in a non-monogamous relationship before. And so I find a big Mm -hmm. piece is that we do in therapy is like validating the person's needs are okay. And that there's nothing wrong with that. And that that can align with their values and be a really um, important piece of who they are. And just because it's like unpacking the shoulds that we get from all the different places, from society, from our family, from we grew up in religion. And so sometimes really making that explicit and looking at, okay, what are the shoulds that I've gotten and what is actually what I want and what's true for me. And then to actually having the conversation, whether it's you're dating it's pretty different if you're dating versus if you're in a relationship. Um, I find that if you're if you're dating, it can be helpful to be really upfront about it, and maybe not. Some people aren't comfortable putting it on a dating profile or saying it in the first date, but I would encourage it within the first three dates if it's something that you know is true for yourself that it isn't something that you're willing to compromise on, and it might feel hard to be open about that at the beginning because you might um, have less options, but you have more options that are actually a fit for you. And so I find it's really helpful to be as open about that as early on as you, you'll feel safe and comfortable doing. 
Yeah, that's definitely our approach. Um, as we're mm-hmm. meeting new people, we both able very early on, mm-hmm. even before the first time we meet somebody in person. Uh, just before the, before the first phone call and we're aware that it limits the dating pool as a whole but it also makes the ones that do continue the conversation more viable candidates than somebody who's going to just get their heart broken yeah actually the the person who has been writing me all day who wants to bring it up to her partner i've been sharing this with you hmm. yeah was asking about how do i bring this up Person. And I, I actually specifically said to her, do not bring it up in a way where you're trying to make the mm-hmm. person fit and make it work. Up in a way where you will potentially rule them out. Because if you if you try to like dance around it and, and put spin on it, all of a sudden it's not as bad as they thought. And, and there's, it's digging a hole. Okay, but so back to what you said, Dom. I'm, I'm, now I'm really curious about this. So you said that when you speak to a single you let them know that it's okay to have these feelings or these interests, or this is something that you want to explore. Validating. Validating them mm-hmm. for having these feelings. How, how would you approach it with the couple that comes in when one person has those feelings and you, you want to tell them that you're perfectly okay and healthy for having these feelings, but they have a partner who adamantly opposes those feelings and says, that is not healthy. That is not what it says in, the book I get my morals from, or it's not what, how I was raised. Like, how do you dance around that? Because that's clearly, it's clearly to, to say it's okay. It's clearly, mm-hmm. we, I, we agree with you, but it's a fact. It's an opinion. Mm-hmm. How do you dance around that when the other partner has a very strong opinion that that is not okay? Yeah. Or healthy or and similarly, I would find it helpful to get really specific with both of them with with both of them about what monogamy means to them, what ethical non-monogamy means for them. Often it can be really helpful for them to write a big like yes, no, maybe list, like things that they are fully a yes to that are completely okay. So that could be, let's say like the flirting with um, the barista um, to the things that they're maybe okay with and the things that are completely off limits, just so we have a starting point. Because the idea of ethical non-monogamy can be quite triggering to people and kind of set up a big wall. And there may actually be more that they're on the same page with than they realize. And so I find that really helpful. And then I also find it helpful to have an exploration with both of them about what messages they got about sex and relationships growing up and their, like, early experiences with sex and sexuality just to kind of check in if just like really going through that exploration of coming into this place where they feel like they've kind of examined their beliefs. And if that is that they don't want monogamy or non-monogamy and they feel really clear on that, that's perfectly okay. But if it's been something that they've never examined before and it's, um, just something that's like an automatic wall that comes up, it can be helpful to just kind of see like, okay, well, what is, what's under that wall? Yeah, for sure. A lot of times it's Mm. like the knee jerk response. So you would want to, yeah, examine, pull back the curtain and figure out what's causing that response. We deal with that a lot 
in our relationship just with emotions uh we call it ptsd from our Mm -hmm. former situations like you know if i say something in a way that triggers an emotion why did that happen that's not the way i meant it i i don't normally respond to you in that way why did i respond in that way yeah so those kind of things are very it when applied to examining alternate relationships yeah those reactions can be so rich like those ones where they feel more extreme than the situation warrants like that's often where a lot of the like good stuff is in terms of I don't mean good as in pleasurable but like really me helpful information about yourself right no I think that's I, I like the idea. I think that's just a general communication tool is find what you agree on first. That's usually a, a fantastic place to start with any thing. Yeah. And then you can build on that. And then the checklist makes sense. Like it, it may turn out that there's things that they have in common. Yeah. I, I'm really enjoying the conversation because we seem to be mm-hmm. on very similar pages. Right. Yes, it's- it's good to hear what we say. Again, it's just kind of validating coming from a professional as well. So, like, we're not that funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, now, I here's the question. This is the, the biggest question I've wanted to ask you this whole time. And, uh, no <laughs> okay, pressure. I'm excited. <laughs> but this, yes, so this has nothing to do with, um, and this is almost a bit off topic, but we're on. The, we're talking to you now, so this is when it comes up. So this has to do with you just as a couples counselor. Nothing to do with non-monogamy or just couples counseling. My observation and one of the things, questions I've had about couples counseling, and this is based on a very small sampling size, so I want to know why I'm wrong or what your opinions of this are. So one of my observations has been if – if I were to, let's say, put relationships on a scale from one to 10, one is horrible. You need to break up in, you know, yesterday mm-hmm. and then 10 is perfect bliss. Right. But there's a spectrum of like the quality of the relationship. And I always think, eh, right about five is the breakup point. So there's a whole range of bad relationships where you should break up from. We just don't quite make it to horrifically not getting along. There's also a whole range of relationships from, yeah, well, we, it's fine. It's, breaking up would be so much of a hassle like we'll stick together Mm. all the way to like bliss there's a range right and what i've observed with a lot of my friends married friends typically who go to couples counseling is that they're going when they're somewhere around you know three or four they're they're going to be breaking up things aren't working out and they seek counseling and the counseling seems to get them Mm. up to about 5.1 like get past the crest where like hey we're not breaking up now, so it's a success. We learned a couple of coping skills. He counts to 10 uh, before mm-hmm. he responds so he doesn't yell. She doesn't drink before dinner, and that's good enough. And, But I've looked at those relationships and thought that doesn't mm-hmm. mean it was a good relationship. It's actually almost as bad as it can get among relationships that stay together. But it's, they didn't break up, so it, it would be considered a success. I mean, how, how do you feel about that as a counselor? Like, do you consider just not breaking up to be the first success mm. point? Or um, does, that, does that make sense? So, 
a few things kind of came to mind when you were when you were speaking about that, and then you, maybe you can let me know if I answer your question. Okay, great. Um, no, so I think like first of all, what what I see here in my practice is I think we get a bit of a biased sample um, for a few reasons. For one, because it's marketed as a sex therapy practice rather than solely a couples therapy practice. And secondly, we're quite young as therapists. So we tend to just naturally draw younger clients, younger couples. And what I think is really cool about what we're seeing is we see people who are coming in that want to like almost not all like not always at that two or three that you're describing out of 10. Some of them are maybe at like the six and they want to learn how to kind of learn new tools for their relationship or they want to improve their sex life and they want to kind of layer on. So I think we see a lot more people that are um, mid to higher functioning. And what's also cool is seeing people that are a bit younger is often it's people that are earlier on in the relationship. And so we have a lot more chance to really help set a foundation compared to people that have um, been married for a really long time. And so that gets me excited that there's more openness to like going to sex therapy, that there's less stigma there and less stigma to going to couples counseling in general. And I hope that that continues because you're right, when people come in um, at the absolute breaking point, Sometimes people come out of that even stronger than they did before. That is certainly a possibility, but there's a lot more that we can do when we get in there, um, when things haven't completely unraveled and been that way for a really, really long time. Oh, that makes sense. So that, yeah. that does make sense. And it, yeah, and it almost seems like that question wasn't necessarily a fair question to someone who works on specific parts of the, of the relationship because what you're saying makes sense because you could repair that. It doesn't mean exactly. you're helping Exactly, exactly. Maybe. Right. So, really, uh, yeah, you're right. It doesn't necessarily reflect what I was thinking. So the, this big question I was trying to ask <laughs> maybe wasn't even the right So you'll have to have another couples <laughs> therapist on and see what hey, they say. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. See, does admit when he's wrong that's great i admit when I'm, <laughs> i i know i am a dom because i admit when i'm wrong because that's a sign of strength and that's a now okay so here's another question then when so we have this this podcast about sexuality where we talk about sex just a little bit we've had this conversation with you we discussed ahead of time that there's nothing really off limits we could talk about and next thing we know an hour later we haven't even <laughs> talked about sex in your how often is the actual sex part talked about the actual practical nature of it, as opposed to all the things that are behind the scenes? Like, is, is it, is this normal? Is this conversation more reflective of what it's like that you're getting to the emotional and spiritual and psychological root of, yeah, of the Yeah, issues? completely. It's almost like sex is what gets people in the door and then, there's everything else like and I often have to kind of remind people as we go through the process that it all relates together. And so I know you came in because um, you have painful experiences with or like physically painful to have intercourse. And now we're talking about how you deal with stress or now we're talking about um, how you mm -hmm. um, 
never rest or what your friendship relationships are like. And it's like, okay, it's all related. It's all related. And I think that that just speaks to the role of just sex in general is that it isn't separate from the other areas of our lives. In fact, it's very, very interwoven. Right. And we've discussed this um, in other episodes, how we prioritize our sex and that we've often felt that people judge people like us who put sex at a high priority saying, oh, well, if, you know, all you care about is sex, then your, your relationship isn't going to last, you know, like, mm. we'll just wait till that starts, to, you know, you know, like, so, yeah, it's important. And it doesn't seem like enough people take it seriously, or because it's kind of stigmatized, like we're not allowed to talk about it, even though it's, it is the single most important part of mm-hmm. how we relate to each other. Everything else is related. Now, I do. I want to ask that question of you. This is this is just your opinion. But one of our observations, and I don't just speak as our, one of my observations has been that if you ask a couple, like, what's the most important part of their relationships? There's so many different answers that can be given. And all of them, children, friendship first, sense of humor, communication, aligning careers, hobbies, all these things are just beautiful, wonderful things. However, anyone who says that sex, money, or what the person looks like is the most important part part to them, it tends to be dismissed as shallow and not a good starting place for a working relationship. And, And But we've always felt, or I've always felt, that it doesn't matter what's most important to you. What matters is that you identify what's most important to you and seek out what's most important to you. And it could be sex. It could be your religion. They're not different. That is just as valid. They're just as valid. Do you agree that that sex, if sex is the most important part of the relationship, that that can be just as valid as the someone else who values friendship? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I always like to work when I'm saying sex, I'm working with a really broad definition too. So I'm, I'm not just speaking about like just penetrative sex. I'm, I'm speaking about like an erotic energy and like intimacy and touch in various kinds of forms. And I, I think that that, like, I think that people can get caught up, let's say in a definition of sex that is like, okay, this many orgasms, or I have sex with this many people or, um, I can be hard for this long or whatever it is. And I think that we can often put our sense of like self-esteem or value in things that, um, like if it's like only material things, I think that that can sometimes get us into a place where we're more susceptible to like highs and lows. Cause we have a lot less control on these external sources of validation. Um, Ooh, ooh, good, good, good. Oh, good. good point. Yeah. I like so that. I think that, but when we broaden it to what it really is about, so maybe if it's someone who really cares about money, maybe it's a sense of really feeling competent or really feeling like they are pursuing their passion and something that really feels connected to the core of who they are. Um, I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Just like when we broaden, okay, what is sex and sensuality and eroticism, like an expression and creativity, when we really look at what's underneath that. Um, I think that it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. 
Yeah, one of the things that we've expressed to each other is that the part of the sexuality that we value in each other is that there's the constant undertow of what, you know, the sex is constant Mm -hmm. with us. It's not a matter of an event. It's not at nine o'clock, we're going to go to bed and this is what's going to happen. And then it's over when he comes, you know, it's a matter of the constant energy and sexual tension and teasing and talking and flirting with each other or others and that energy being a part of our daily life. And that's why we say that sex is the most important thing to us. And that's what, what we were looking for yeah. in a partner when we came together. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's not just the penetration of when it's going to happen and how frequent or whatever, but it's like the, the constant mm-hmm. eroticism and sensuality. We our life is sex and we take a break from sex Mm -hmm. to work and sleep and eat. Right. Is the way we look at it. But certainly I'm a 51 year old man. We certainly aren't having penetration sex 10 hours a day. I would like to. (laughs) We all would like to. (laughs) That that ship has sailed. All right. So now uh, one last question for you. Uh, Well, I'm sorry, two questions for you. The first question, where yeah. Can someone buy your um, So it is available on Amazon and it's also available on like all the major book outlets. So like Barnes and Noble, um, Chapters, Indigo, and it comes out officially on October 13th. But if you, if you go online now, you can pre-order it or you can get the ebook copy. Wonderful. That's fantastic. And we will link to it in the episode description yeah it'll be permanent we're as this grows people will look back at past episodes based on topics and so uh, there will be residual viewers Mm -hmm. coming in hopefully forever and hopefully our all of our massive future (laughs) audience will reflect on our early episode we appreciate you speaking with us now because you'll get especially as the book comes out you'll get requests from people who are are on podcast number three they're never going to do podcast number five like and so you're you're giving time to someone new to this is is very oh, generous of you uh because no I, I love it second question you I do, do counseling remotely yep. okay and let's uh, anyone who's been listening to this should be incredibly interested in talking to if they need a counselor mm-hmm. in, in an area of expertise that like you said a traditional counselor with even with the best intentions if they don't have the wisdom of being in that world or this world, they're not, they're just lacking skills uh, that you have. So where would someone reach you? To, uh, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate this that. Is um, so you can go to my website, which is Aaron E Davidson.com. Aaron is E R I N. And you can also find me. So you can contact me through that, or you can also connect with me on Instagram and shoot me a message there. And my Instagram is, Aaron.e.davidson. And that is how we find you. So it works. And we really appreciate you spending time with us today. And if any of our listeners reach out to you, we would love to hear success stories or whatever you can share and uh, maybe talk to us again in the future. Yeah. And if our relationship completely begins <laughs> to fall apart in March. You, you can call me. 
we will call you. We will we will call you and save the day. Thank you so much for. Uh, I really speaking with you. Yes, yeah, same. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you guys just made it to season one of the Kink Buffet podcast. We're going to be on a river in the middle of the desert for the next seven days. And we're going to come back with at least 20 more ideas for the next 20 episodes. So actually, we already have them all down. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Thanks, guys.